but I definitely recognized him. And walking towards him, I extended my hand to shake his hand. Yeah, I did. And so, yeah, I extended, <laughs> extended my hand to shake, uh, shake his hand. And, and he, he told me to put my hands on the, on the trunk of my car. And, and, and immediately I could, I could see in my periphery other officers. And, and, and then I even noticed that, that the officer that I was approaching, his hand wasn't going towards mine. His hand was, was reaching down towards his hip. Oh. And so I immediately complied. <laughs> and I put my hands on, on my vehicle, and uh, he explained that I was under arrest for the murder of my wife. And my immediate thought was, well, my, my wife is, is in her pie shop, and so, I mean, what's going on? My, my immediate thought was concern for Christine. Injustice Anywhere presents Snowfile, the wrongful conviction of Jamie Snow, and how they got away with it. Snow Files, episode 23, the story of Kurt and Christine Lovelace. The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. Kurt Lovelace's wife, Corey, passed away on February 14, 2006, after having been ill all weekend. After taking the children to school, Kurt returned home around 9 a.m. and found Corey unresponsive in her bed. Dr. Jessica Bowman performed the autopsy at the medical center in Springfield. She found evidence of a condition called steatosis, fatty deposits in the liver, which is caused by alcoholism, but left the cause undetermined because according to her deposition, she couldn't pinpoint the exact cause. Corey's mother told police that her daughter was bulimic and an alcoholic. Kurt and Christine had attended homecoming together in high school, and they reconnected through Facebook. They were married on December 26, 2013. Christine left her corporate job in Minneapolis and moved back to Quincy, Illinois, where Kurt worked as an attorney and Christine opened a pie shop. Former Quincy prosecutor Kurt Lovelace was charged with the murder of his wife, Corey Lovelace, eight years after her death, and was arrested before Kurt and Christine had the chance to celebrate their first anniversary. Kurt had two trials. The first resulted in a hung jury. The second resulted in a not guilty verdict. This is their story. As it's Pretty well publicized these days. Kurt and I did go to high school together. My family moved to Quincy, Illinois in, oh gosh, 1982, I think. We were in the end of, or maybe the middle of our eighth grade year. It seems so long ago. And that would be my first introduction to Kurt, just both kids. And then we went on to high school together and we went to senior high school homecoming together. So then Kurt went his way and I went my way and we both started families and I left that area and didn't return. I, I had family there. My grandparents were there. So I only returned for visits for my high school girlfriends and, and my grandparents. I never, I never saw Kurt. I didn't really interact with, with anyone else. And it was in 
May, I believe, or mm -hmm. April or May of 2013, I was living in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and empty nester. My daughter was in and out of college by this point, and I was just living my corporate life. And I had returned from a business trip on a Friday night, I believe it was. The Saturday morning, I woke up, I flip open my iPad, and like most of us do, you just start scrolling social media. And Kurt and I had been Facebook friends for some time, but we, we didn't interact. We just, just like the other 150 people on your Facebook, you, you don't really interact. They're just kind of there. And I saw that Kurt had made a post of a thank you to a local gym that he had been to in Dinah, I think it was, Minnesota, which is right outside of, of Minneapolis. Well, I, I, I mean, that's just rare for me to get to see somebody where I live from my childhood. I, I, we do have a friend that lived in Minneapolis that I hung out with while I was there, but that, I mean, that was just, it was just a, an anomaly. So I was so excited. So I sent him a message and I said, Hey, hold up. I live in downtown Minneapolis. So if you're still here, let's have lunch or something. And, and that was it. Just a friendly kind of thing. I really didn't know, I, I believed that Kurt was married, so it wasn't like it was something that was going to go anywhere. We were just having, it was just a lunch kind of a thing. And trust me, at that time in my life, I was not interested in any kind of a relationship. I was like, in my mind, going places in my career and have no time for anything else. So it would have been later that day or the next day, I think. Well, it was later, the, later in the day, after I had actually boarded a flight and returned to Illinois. Yeah. And Kurt responded and he said, Hey, I'm, I'm already, I'm already back home, but next time you're in town, let's, let's hang out or something. The next time I was in town, then I was hanging out with my, my good friend. And she said to me like the second day, because there was, she was going to have a cookout and gathering and stuff, silly stuff. And she's like, Hey, let me just back up real quick. My friends were always trying to set me up with people. <laughs> I don't know what, why married people do that to single friends, but that's what they do. So I was always, no, 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 like, you know, no. So then this particular day, Melissa was like, hey, why don't you give Kurt Lovelace a call? And I'm like, I don't have Kurt's phone number. And, and she was like, well, just invite him over to the dinner tonight. So I'm like, and you know what? Okay. So I, I don't have his number. I don't have an email. I don't have anything like that. So I just sent him a instant message. And I said, look, I'm going to be at this person's house, come out for dinner or something. You responded that you had the kids mm -hmm. and you were having a pizza movie night. Right. So it was like, I guess it would have been the Friday night. And he said, but Hey, I'll come out after, you know, we finish. And so he did. And do you want to talk about this? <laughs> sure. And, and then, yeah, I met at this, another person we went to high school with their, their house. It was late in the evening and Christine. It was like eight o'clock. That's late for us. Christine answered the door and uh, I was like, wow. And, and ended up just spending uh, the night with those friends, but mostly with Christine just talking endlessly uh, about all kinds of topics and just catching up on, on her life. And it was just, I was just in awe and with well, what she had done and, 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 and who she had become. And, and so that led to future dates and a, a relationship and, and, and ultimately a marriage. 
Exactly. So something that was not even on a radar <laughs> turned into what we have today. So it's, it's, we have a fun story, I think. In some ways, there's parts of it that are tragic and sad and obviously emotional, and, and we carry that stuff with us today. But then we got married, and Kurt has three sons, and I adopted the boys. And they're amazing young men, and they have grown into wonderful young men. I'm so proud of them. We have an incredible relationship. It's, it's funny because they... I think right out the gate, we had, we called it a date. Now we call it a mom-son date when we refer back to it, where I took the boys shopping for Kurt for Father's Day gifts in 2013. They had so much fun. It was so funny. They put their sister on the phone. She was out of town. So she kind of traveled along with us via the telephone. And it was just such a, a good day. And then we met Kurt later and ate dinner. And I think that kind of, you know, sealed our relationship and the boys and I became in, inseparable. It's, it's funny because even now people will look at us and they're like, he has your mannerisms or this. It's just funny. But we were married in December, the day after Christmas in 2013. And we just started our life together. And then what happened? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we were... We were cleaning up a house. We were living in a house where Kurt had lived with his ex-wife. It was not a great place to live just because the house had been intentionally harmed and kind of, she caused destruction in the home. So in order for us to put the house on the market, we had to clean it up. So we agreed that we would live there in the beginning of our marriage. And then as soon as the house was in sellable condition, we would put it on the market and move. And we did. And then at the beginning of August of 2014, we had the house on the market. We had a buyer and we, we really weren't sure what we were going to do in our next steps. I had opened a pie shop, but I was willing to move that pie shop somewhere else. Then a few weeks later, some tragedy came knocking on the door. So in August of, of 2014, as, as Christine indicated, I mean, she had her pie shop. I was uh, practicing law. I was no longer a prosecutor. I was a solo practitioner. And we were, again, had a lot of different options that we were looking at. But for the most part, she was doing what she could to, to operate a small business. And, and I was doing everything in my law office as a solo practitioner. And so I had dropped Christine off at the pie shop and went to my office, just a typical day. I had planned on taking uh, lunch to Christine. She couldn't leave the pie shop. So my, my plan was to work and then around the noon hour, go to the bank, then go grab lunch, take it to the pie shop, have lunch, come back to the office. And so around noon, I walked out of my office, which is a stone's throw away from the county courthouse where I was practicing and, and had practiced for many years as a, a private practice attorney then and formerly a prosecutor. And as I walked out, I, my car was parked across the street. There was, a, there was a man in front of it. He was wearing uh, a coat and a tie. I, I, I recognized him. I, I 
I recognized him as a, a Quincy police officer. I had been introduced to, to most of the Quincy police force throughout the years as a prosecutor. He wasn't someone that I really remembered having as a witness in a case and prosecuting cases. And I had several jury trials while I was an assistant state's attorney. But I definitely recognized him. And walking towards him, I extended my hand to shake his hand. Yeah, I did. And so, yeah, I extended, <laughs> extended my hand to shake, uh, shake his hand. And, and he, he told me to put my hands on the, on the trunk of my car. And, and, and immediately I could, I could see in my periphery other officers. And, and, and then I even noticed that, that the officer that I was approaching his hand wasn't going towards mine. His hand was, was reaching down towards his hip. Oh. And so I immediately complied and <laughs> put my hands on, on my vehicle. And uh, he explained that I was under arrest for the murder of my wife. And my immediate thought was, well, my, my wife is, is, in her pie shop. And so, I mean, what's going on? My, my immediate thought was concern for Christine. Oh, wow. And, and then I, I think I responded something effect that my wife, she's, she's in her pie shop or whatever. Uh, I think I voiced that. And, and he went on to explain that I was under the arrest, uh, under arrest for the murder of, of Corey Lovelace, my wife who had passed away over eight years ago at that time. And I, I, I was just confused and puzzled and, and I, I was handcuffed and, and I was put in the back of, of a police car. And the guy driving the police car was a police officer, one of the police officers I knew as well as any police officer because he was someone that I had somewhat grown up with. His, his mom was best friends with my mom. So when they would get together, he was quite a bit younger than me, but when they would get together, we, I would have interaction with him and his brother and, and he stayed in Quincy and I stayed in Quincy. So I, I knew him well. And I, and I remember him looking back and it was just the two of us. He was driving, I was in the back seat and he looked back at me and he said, Hey Kurt, sorry, I'm just, I'm just a taxi driver here. And almost apologetic that we had to be involved with this. And so we went to the uh, Quincy uh, Police Department and I was put in an interview room. And the, the officer who arrested me was Detective Adam Gibson. And again, I didn't know the guy, I recognized the guy. And so I sat down in this interview room and he came in. And as an attorney, you would think that I would immediately say, I'm not gonna talk to anyone. Um, I want yeah. and that's the rule, right? That's, 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 what, that, that's what attorneys advise. <laughs> yes. But, but apparently don't follow. Yeah, with, and, yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and I look back and I, I think it's a, a good illustration or example of what any person who has been wrongfully charged with a crime goes through. And, and that is, you're sitting there and you're saying, I'm innocent. I didn't do anything. They want to know the truth and I want to tell them the truth. Surely this thing is going to work out. This is a mistake. 
And if I just talk to them and tell the truth, surely this is going to clear things up. And so I, I answered all of his questions. I, I, I talked with him, I, I think, for almost an hour and told him multiple times, I, I, I didn't kill my wife. Here's what I remember from the day that she had passed away. And, and it just didn't matter. He kept on saying that he had multiple pathologists who had determined that she had been suffocated. And, and I had never heard that before. And so finally, he just, he stopped interviewing me. It's, it, it, again, it's really strange. I never said, but I'm not going to say anything else. I need an attorney. So this might be a little bit of a tough question for you, but you guys keep saying that you were naive and you didn't know that the law enforcement wasn't after the, tr after the truth, but you were a prosecutor in that inner circle for seven years. So huh. are you saying that, you'd never witnessed anything underhanded or unfair to a defendant during your time? I, I had not. I, and, and again, I was a prosecutor for about seven years. I um, actually had a dual role in that office. I handled a lot of civil matters, advising the county board. But when I took the position, I asked the state's attorney to get me involved in criminal cases. And I wanted to try cases. And so I, I split time between the civil matters, going to county board meetings, handling employment issues, and then also would be assigned cases each month. Some of them would end in some sort of plea agreement. Others would go to trial. And no, I, I really hadn't observed anything underhanded. I had, had observed interviews with witnesses on video. I had observed interviews with defendants on video, similar to the video um, that was taken of me. But I really hadn't viewed it from a perspective of, is this a search for the truth, or is this just a, a ploy or an attempt to keep a defendant talking or elicit some sort of confession. So I, I think I was a little bit naive from that standpoint. I think things probably would have been a little bit different for me if it wasn't uh, for the fact that I, I, I trusted the Quincy Police Department. I had worked with the Quincy Police Department, and, and I believed that the members of the police department were, were, were out there and investigating and, and doing so in a manner where they were truly searching for the truth versus trying to create crimes and just go about things just to get a conviction. I remember, you know, taking a break and him coming back. And, and I remember during the break thinking to myself, I, I've been arrested. Where's Christine? Where are, are, are my boys? Where, how is this going to impact our family? How are we going to survive this? And it, 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 I started to realize the impact of not only being arrested, but being charged with the murder of, of my ex-wife. And then ultimately, I, at, at one point, he, he said, well, your, your, your bail has been set at $5 million. And, and it was then that I realized, well, clearly I'm not going anywhere. And, and yeah. so, so I, I didn't know where Christine was. I didn't know what had been communicated to anyone 
I didn't know where they were. And, and I do recall during that break, looking out the small window, just standing up, looking out the small window. And I could, and I could see, I think it was our middle son. And I could, I could see him in the hallway of the police department. Mm-hmm. So he was at the police department. I knew that. So then I was taken from the Quincy Police Department to the Adams County Jail. And from there, I was informed that I would be sent to the Hancock County Jail because they didn't want to hold me in the Adams County Jail because I had been a former prosecutor and they were concerned about, and recently a former, you know, a prosecutor. So it right. was quite possible I would have to interact with some, some people that would not, would not think fondly um, of me as far as being an attorney and, and being a prosecutor. So that's what was happening on my end of the things, but Christine was going through a, a, a whole different experience at the same time. Well, sure. I do want to interject too. Like he asked you on three different occasions to take a lie detector test, right? Sure. And Kurt said mm-hmm. yes and signed. And he talked to you, did he talk to you too about his nephew and his nephew dying and drowning somehow and how all these different things? It was, it was incredibly, but Czar. Yeah, I mean, I, I I look back at it, and I when I see that that interview, which which was was played in court to the jury in the first trial, it, they the prosecutor didn't play it in the second trial. I I, I look back at it and I see all the techniques he used as far as trying to to get me to say something and wanting a confession, and just trying to convince me that whatever I thought had happened was factually impossible and that there were experts out there and there was no doubt in anyone's mind that I had killed my wife in February of 2006. And he did. Will you take a fire detector test? And I said, absolutely. And he brought in a form and I signed it. And, and of course, he really didn't want me to take a lie detector test. And it, you're right; he did. He didn't. He didn't want the truth. It was. It was. Uh, and, and, and again, now that we're doing this work and, and have clients who ha- are innocent and have been charged with crimes, I, I've seen them go through a similar experience. And and I look at them and I immediately I'm like, don't talk, don't talk. And they do, and they talk. And then I think I talk too because again. You just, you're innocent. So you, you, you think, well, they surely must care what the truth is. And this thing will, will work out, I mean, throughout the whole process. And I, I think Jamie's case, and I think Jamie's made similar comments. I mean, Jamie talks about being in a trial and thinking, this is all going to work out because I'm innocent. Yeah. Uh, how, whatever happens at this trial, a jury is going to find me not guilty because I know I'm innocent. And, and, and what we learn in, in Jamie's case, and even in my first trial, which ended in a mistrial, and, and I was found not guilty in a second trial, but even in a mistrial, even after all the evidence was presented, I didn't get to go home. And, and Jamie, similarly, didn't get to go home, and, and he hasn't got to go home. But I think we were, we were so naive at that time about how this world works, I, I, I like Kurt, we believe that police officers were all honest and the only thing they're doing is looking for the truth when they're doing an investigation and courts and prosecutors and judges are all above board and honest. And, and I think that in the very beginning, that, that was, I, 
our thought is this will work out because this is crazy. But then one day led to one week, to one month, to two months, to just became our life. And, and in the beginning, when, when Kurt said I had a whole different experience, it was because nobody called me to say, hey, we arrested your husband. Now, they, the officer did call other people. We now have the phone record showing that he called other people saying, hey, we're getting ready to arrest him. I think even like the minute before Kurt was arrested, the officer had made phone calls to a person to sure. tell them the arrest was going to take place. Not a law enforcement person, other people. And so you guys were just blindsided. Blindsided. Like you had no idea there was an investigation. Did they, no suspicion, no nothing. Nothing. It, it was, it, it was, I, I call it getting a baseball bat to the face. I'm baking away at my pie shop, going about our day like we would normally do. And like Kurt said, he would come and have lunch with me. And because I would be so busy at, at lunchtime, he would, he would come and help me at the pie shop and then go back to his law office. And we were starting our life. We were creating our family. We were, you know, building. Want to join the Jamie Snow support team? Become a patron for as little as $1 a month. Just go to snowfiles.net and click on Be My Patron on Podbean. All donors will have our undying appreciation and acknowledgement on the show. The highest tier donors will be invited to host a QA segment. Funds are used to cover our administrative costs and to keep Jamie in the media. I got a, a phone, actually it was a text message. I was, I was sitting at my front counter. <laughs> it seems so crazy now. Writing out a new recipe that I had just concocted mm-hmm. 10 minutes before. And this friend worked at the local news station and said to me in this text message, and I still have it, I'm, I'm here for you if you need anything. And I'm just like, hey, Brian, thanks. <laughs> and I did, I responded, I said, thank you. Like, what's going on? And I was kind of like, oh, wait, did he miss text me? And it was meant for somebody else. But even when I sent the message of thanks, it was a heartbeat. And his name came across my screen as a caller. And I was like, okay, so something must be up. So I answered and I'm like, hey, what's going on? And he's a longtime friend. He asked me where I was at and I told him working, I'm at the pie shop. And then he asked, he's like, are you okay? And I said, yes. And then I think he was trying to decipher what I knew and what I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And I, as he continued, my heart was dropping and I was getting, I can feel it right now as I'm talking about it. Sorry. He said, where's Kurt? And I said, working. And then he said, where at? And then I was, I was thinking immediately something happened to Kurt. And I I said, Brian, what is it? What, what's going on? Like he must've known something had happened to Kurt. And I'm like, tell me what's happening. And he said, Christine, I'm holding a copy of an indictment in my hand. Kurt was arrested for the first degree murder of Corey Lovelace. And I was like, I, I just stunned. And I said, and I I heard murder and I'm like, Corey was a murder. Like not, not even being able to register anything else he said, other than there was a woman that had been murdered. 
And I'm like, Corey wasn't murdered. And then Brian said, I, I, I actually, I can't even tell you what he said. There was something else he said. And I told him, I have to find the boys. And I just hung up the phone. I started looking for the boys. One of the boys should have been in football, going into football practice. The other one would have been, by this time, heading home. The other one leaving his after-school activities. And it, it didn't dawn on me anything had happened with the boys. And it also didn't dawn on me that they had arrested Kurt two and a half hours prior to this phone call. Right. So I would then find where the boys are. I had to get home. The boys were at the police station. They had been held in isolation. We call it kidnapping because basically that's, they were kidnapped, taken to the police station. They were held in isolation. They were questioned without understanding why they weren't told they could leave. They didn't know that they could call me. Actually, one of the boys said to the other, one of our sons said to the other one, can, can we call, can we call Christine? And, and Lincoln said, I don't think we're allowed to. They had no idea they're kids. Yeah. And then trying to get the boys from the police station, it was almost like a game was going on. One of a family who has a son who's friends with our oldest son or was friends, they, they seemed to know a lot about what was going on and where the boys were. When I got to the police station to pick up the boys, both this woman and her husband were there. It was a, a bit interesting. I walked into the room where the boys are and they stood up and they came over and they hugged me and they still had no idea what was going on. They as well thought something had happened to me because two weeks before Kurt's arrest, his ex-wife's daughter had put a rat in my pie shop. There, there's evidence that they had egged the pie shop. There was an ongoing, I, I don't even know what to call it. It was something it's just- kind of like harassment. Yeah. Yeah. On an ongoing basis, she would show up in the alley behind our house. There was all kinds of of things that were going on. Harassment, constantly filing lawsuits to get money from Kurt, things of that nature. And so also about two weeks before Kurt's arrest, she had lost her battle to gain financial gain from us. So we thought we were finally free of her and that wouldn't be the case, but nonetheless, the boys thought because everything had happened with her that maybe some she had taken things a step farther and something was wrong with me so we sat in this little room at the police station for a few minutes kurt's parents were there they were out in this other room and as we sat there for a second and just reeling like where are we what is happening in walks this man sort of short stocky and it was just, as I sit here explaining it today, I, I visualize this suit that's too big for him, this overwhelming odor of tobacco smoke. And he stands there in front of us and looks at the boys and says, you're fucked for murdering your mom. Wow. And it, it was just like, what? 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 And when he said this, and and I, he he followed that with her name. And when he said it, there was almost like a smirk and a, ch- I wouldn't say a chuckle, but it was a, a smirk of like a weird laughter. It was just incredibly bizarre. I sent the boys home. That officer stayed in that room, and we sat down at a desk. 
I still thought at this moment that the, that this guy's here to help, right? He's an officer. He's supposed to help people. His job is to get to the truth, and that's what we're doing here. And uh, he started saying things to me like, Kurt has been arrested for murder, and this is going to go pretty quickly. What will happen is he'll get a public defender. His bail has been set at $5 million, and he'll probably take a plea deal, and then he'll be sentenced and then go to the Department of Corrections. And I was stunned. And I'm like, wait, what? As we were sitting there and the officer was saying, it's unlawful to do this, or you can't do that, or, or whatever, I, I realized he's not there to help us. And so I told him that. I, I said to him, you don't want to help us. You're here to hurt us. And with that, I... I stood up and walked out that door to where Kurt's mom and dad were standing and Kurt's dad was on the telephone with Kurt and he just handed me the phone. I walked into, there's a, a men's bathroom. We were in a basement and that's where this police department is. And I walked into the men's bathroom and, and spoke to Kurt and what's going on here. We had a brief, brief conversation and they said, he said, this is what they're doing. This is where they're taking me. Kurt's dad and I went over to the Adams County Courthouse where the Sheriff's Department is, where he was going to be booked. And we couldn't find him. Somebody brought me out his belongings, his wallet, those things. And then we left and that's, they told us that he was going to be taken to another jail in another county for safety. Kurt's dad and I went back to our house. We got the boys squared away. We, we took care of things there. And then I knew that the sheriff had been the bailiff for my grandfather when my grandfather was the, the circuit court judge and maybe even when he was chief judge. And so I, and, and for whatever reason, I had his telephone number. So I called his number and he gave the, and, and I was basically gonna ask him a question. I didn't know that he was actually driving Kurt to the other county. So I oh, spoke cool. with him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And so he just said, hold on a second. And so then I, I don't know how that worked in the car. Then I could tell him, this is what's happening. This is what we're going to do. And that was it. That was our last private interaction we had well, you were on speakerphone so <laughs> I was, I was okay yeah. yeah so we we had no other private words though and then we just had to jump into action and i knew i was going to have to find lawyers and 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 kind of go from there So on my end of things, and, and it's interesting, Christine and I talk about a lot that we we had really different experiences through through this. So she's kind of described to you what was going on while I was in the Quincy Police Department and then moved to the Adams County Jail and then placed in a car and, and, and the sheriff. Again, here I, I had been driven from where I was arrested to the Quincy Police Department by someone, a, a childhood friend that I, that I would know. And then I would be driven from the Adams County Jail to the Hancock County Jail in Carthage, Illinois, by the sheriff, who Christine knew. 
from her grandfather. I knew really well because this guy was a year uh, ahead of Christine and I in high school, went to the high school across town, Quincy Notre Dame, and, and was a really good football player. And I played football. I played football against him. He went on to Eastern Illinois to play football. I went on to the University of Illinois to play football. We'd see each other once a year because Eastern Illinois would sometimes use our field to practice and uh, on certain occasions. And, and I continued to, to know him as, as an assistant state's attorney. So, so again, I, I have these relationships. And I do remember when, when talking to Christine on the speakerphone, He's in the front seat, I'm in the back seat. So we drive about 45 minutes to Carthage, Illinois, to the Hancock County Jail. It's a smaller jail. It's, a, it's, it's one of the smallest population counties in the state of Illinois. And they check me in. And so I strip down, put on uh, striped uh, pants, put on a striped top. They hand me a plastic cup with a toothbrush and a bar of soap and a towel and lead me from their booking area into what, what they would call a, a work release section. It was an open bay, kind of a barracks type situation with approximately, I, I think it probably be 10 beds, bunk beds, so five pairs of, of bunk beds. And, and I believe at the time there with me, I think there was eight people in that area. They had a, had a table um, with five chairs around it, very sterile, metal. Everything's attached to the floor or the wall. There's one shower. And what I would learn is in most prisons and most jails, which is the combination toilet sink for, for all those people. And, and, and that's where I was placed. And I would be in that county jail from August of 2014 until my first trial in January of 2016. And that trial would end in a mistrial. That trial was in Adams County. So after two weeks of being in Adams County, because they put me in the Adams County Jail for the trial, I would go back to the Hancock County Jail because the state would then make a decision to try me again. And I would be there until June of 2016. So almost two years in jail. As Christine said, we, we didn't have any, couldn't have any private conversations. Everything was recorded. I, I think, Tammy, you're, you're, you're real familiar with Securus. Oh, yes. <laughs> you, Securus is... The, I hate that woman. I hate that woman's Se voice. Se Securus is the is a system that a lot of prisons and, and county jails use. To, and, and at that time, I think we were paying 50 cents a minute. And so, you know... That we, was discounted. I think it was even higher than that. And we got it down to the 50 cents. Yeah. And, and so, very expensive. And you had to buy these cards. And and that was my first thing. When I, when I showed up at county jail, it's, it's like, what do I do? I mean, how does this work? I've never been yeah. in jail before. And, and well, they was, didn't let us visit for a week yeah, to have yeah, a phone he, call because he was a new inmate. And yeah. so, so I had to figure out, you know, how do I make a phone call? Well, you got to buy these cards. Well, how do I get money? And, and, and how do I get, because they, they give you pants and a top. How do, yeah. I, how do I get t-shirts and underwear and socks and all that? And they, they after a while, 
they explained and Christine dropped off some things and, and she put money on my account and then I would buy these cards and that would be our life for almost two years of calling and, and listening to the lady securus announce the phone call and that, that horrible warning that she would give that you only had one minute left and then wondering, okay, how much time do I have left? And, 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 and so it, it's, it's a different life. And one as a prosecutor, I had never experienced. And one as a lawyer, most lawyers don't experience. And so there was, there was a mistrial. We went back and to Hancock County jail. And then it was a, a whole new set of questions. Because, because Kurt was someone so, in, in such a bizarre manner, coined him the golden boy after he got arrested, they, refer, they would refer to him as the golden boy, which was crazy. Kurt's just a regular guy. Kurt doesn't have a big ego. There's been you know, national news stories on Kurt where there are people from our childhood who we didn't see. Maybe Kurt had seen one woman like once in 20 years, but they would refer to Kurt as he got, grew an ego and these different things. That's not Kurt. Well, you've met Kurt. That's not Kurt. And so they were referring to him as like the golden boy and the former prosecutor and school board president and these things. His picture was everywhere. And not that that town is big. However, it was across the state. So the boys and I couldn't go into the supermarket without Kurt's picture being on the front page of the newspaper behind the clerk who scans our items. So we became a bit isolated and our friends would help us do things and people were not kind to us. Yeah. People who had been close to us and supportive of our family and the adoption immediately turned into the most hateful people. I, I had never experienced such hate and meanness before. But when I was able to finally see Kurt, or what I thought I was going to be able to see him, a very close friend of mine who lived in Springfield came down to Quincy and actually <laughs> actually drove with me to a store to get Kurt some boxer shorts. He had to have a specific kind of boxers and socks and t-shirts and things like that. And we took him out to the jail. So we drove out there and then they didn't let me see him. And, but they took the things and that's how he got his first items is people going and buying things for him because I could not go into the store without being harassed. So it, it was a situation that was just crazy. It was crazy. But from there then, we knew we had to hire attorneys and I had to give myself kind of a crash course on what do you do when your husband gets arrested for something? I had no idea. So I started making phone calls and a friend of ours who lives up in the Quad Cities area, who also worked with Kurt when he played football for a possible, possible bid for the NFL, he would have represented Kurt. I called him, he's an attorney, and I said, this is what happened, I don't know what to do. And so he is amazing and will forever live in a great place in my heart. He. Um, jumped into action and he said, okay, this is what we need to do. I'm going to get you a list of names of attorneys. You don't just hire anybody. And obviously, you know, don't get somebody local, which I wouldn't have gotten somebody local anyway. They, it, it appeared to me from the short time that I had been living in Quincy then as an adult, that the attorneys there don't just, there isn't just a criminal defense attorney who handles criminal law. 
um, that same attorney one day might be in divorce court or traffic court and then also be handling some sort of serious crime. And obviously that's not something that I was going to want. So, and I, I remember just hearing that officer who had only been a detective for a short time with no education say to me, Kurt will get a public defender. This will happen. This will go fast. And I'm like, no. And so I started calling attorneys. At some point, our pastor came to our house. He could see that I was sort of in a frantic, chaotic, trying to get things done. And he just said to me, let's just sit for a second and take a breath. And he started saying a prayer. And in the prayer, he said, we're, we're asking for guidance and we, we ask for intervention and we ask for you to show the way and, and for an attorney to do this. And, and the moment he got the attorney words out, my phone rang and that was Jay Elmore, Kurt's first attorney. Sorry. <laughs> it's, it's still difficult to talk about. And the, our pastor, he, he just tapped my arm and he's like, answer it. <laughs> answer the call. It's gone. And so the first thing Jay said to me is he says, I, I just said hello. And he says, Christine, my name is Jay Elmore. You don't know me. I grew up in Quincy, actually, where you're sitting right now. If you're sitting in the front room of your house, I grew up in a house across the street from that house. So if you look out your window, that's where I grew up. And he starts talking and going on and on and on. And he said, I have over the last hour been looking and reading and trying to figure out. He said, the prosecutor who's going to be handling this case was a special prosecutor. He said, I can throw a rock and hit his building from my office. And so he almost immediately made me comfortable with him. He had another person with him, not in the same office, but they do a lot of work together. Jeff Page. And he said, this is what you need to tell Kurt and tell him, try to get a hold of him. And that's when I spoke to Kurt on the phone when he was in the car with the sheriff. And I said, you're going to go to an arraignment. This is what you do. This is what you say. This is what's going to happen. Tell them you yeah. I'm because we're getting an attorney, that whole thing, which is what we now, we tell all your clients when somebody's advocate first calls us. So we went and then when he got arraigned that day in court, I think that's when I realized that this was going to be a bit of a circus. Kurt's arrest was not only big news in Quincy, Illinois. It made national news, and Christine and her family were hounded by local and national news organizations. I was walking from a car with one of my childhood friends and her husband into the courthouse, and there were TV cameras. And they were, I mean, every, everything was being filmed. Everything was being, you know, watched. And I've since had to watch me on that day walking from a car into that courthouse dozens of times on television. And I think what an incredibly intrusive moment when oh, it just so much was going on. But they started calling my cell phone. I had no idea how these people could get my private cell phone number. I'm very private with my cell phone, as, you, as you're aware. And, and so I, I would go into my closet and, and cry so the boys wouldn't see me cry. And I answer the phone and, and it would be this person saying, my name is Ari and I'm calling you from 2020 and we want to get an interview. And I'm like, how did you, who, what is it? What are you, what are you saying right now? 
And then the next call was from Chris, somebody 48 hours. And I'm like, no. And I didn't know what to do with these phone calls. And then yeah. my name's Rob Buchanan and I'm, I'm with NBC and I'm this, and I'm just like, what are you doing? What is this? Like we're in this little town. And so then I, I gave Matt there. I'm like, you're going to have to call this guy. Um, he's going to be representing me and my boys if we need any kind of representation or he'll handle our family legal things. So call him. And I just sent everything to Matt and I'm like, and they, they never stopped. They continued calling. I changed my phone number how many times, seven times, I think. And they continued to get my phone number. One of the producers would FedEx letters to me to make sure that I got them, right. have to sign for them. And it was insane. And then when the boys and I would venture out, we would try to get out of the house at weird hours and maybe even go get a bite to eat at a restaurant. And we would eat dinner at three o'clock or three 30 in the afternoon to try to avoid people, but also to be out. And we'd go to places that we knew were friendly to our family and weren't going to harass us. The good thing now, when I look back is the police talking to the media and the chief of police telling everyone that he was going to be the spokesperson for, for the case and things. That was a good thing that they spoke so much mm -hmm. because every time they spoke, they would say something else that was helpful to Kurt's case. Like they have new evidence. What new evidence? What is the evidence? Or how did this case get started? And the detective or the, the, the new detective who was a elder service officer actually would say how he became involved in the case or wanted to do the case and things of that nature. And there's about three different stories that he's given. So I came to like that they would talk so much because they would say things and they clearly weren't in it for the truth. We now have FOIA documents that we had obtained where there's even a bill that was sent to the county and I, I don't know who wrote it if it was the prosecutor or the police officer but they used to refer to Kurt as Kurt Love Less and they would say yeah. that and make fun of his name and to the point where even the prosecutor at one point was overheard in a courthouse saying ha 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 in that funny Kurt Loveless being charged for a murder on Valentine's Day and making light of it. And I'm like, he's the special prosecutor. But on this one document, it had written out Loveless case with like a, a dollar amount, but it wasn't just written out. I mean, it was, it was, it was like, it was hyphenated Loveless yeah. case. And then the, one of the local TV channels actually would list his name underneath on a kind of a crawler and it was actually they spelled it l-o-v-e-l-e-s-s -E -E -S. there was a journalist tv reporter i guess who would follow the case and she used to rip her write her phone number down on a piece of paper and rip it off and give it to me but one day there was a private hearing going on and i was sitting in the hallway and she came over to sat next to me and she's like do you want to talk and i'm like no and she said, if you ever need anything, I'm here. And I'm like, we're not friends. But then I asked her, I said, hey, Jenny, I have a question. You're always referring to our family as Loveless. Our, our name is Lovelace. You know how it's spelled. That's always how you're referring. And I said, why are you doing that? And she said, because my bosses have told me that's what I'm supposed to do. So I, I have a, a, a bias in an unpositive way 
with media and, and what goes on there. So again, they're shaping a story for clicks and, and ratings and reads and sales and not necessarily what actually is the truth. In March 2017, Kurt was acquitted of the murder of Corey Lovelace in his second trial. He was represented by John Lovey and Tara Thompson of the Exoneration Project. A couple of months later, Kurt and Christine established the Lovelace Center for Criminal Defense. To date, they have freed one wrongfully convicted client and have had three acquittals. When we walked out of the courthouse in 2017, in March of 2017, at 4.05 p.m., I always expected that that not guilty verdict would come and the sun would come out and be shining and everything would be normal and, and, and everything would be go, go back to the way it was and we would have jobs and we'd be earning this money and it would be great. Well, that's not the reality. And we've learned that and, and we're still healing and trying to figure out what reality is and what our future is. But we knew right away that this is the work we were going to want to do and we wanted to help as many people as we could. But we still have lights that we have to pay for. We still have food that we have to pay for. We still have a child that was at home that we had to take care of. And, and so we do as much as we can. And when those people call and say, hey, can you help us? We try to. We absolutely try to do what we can. But then also what happens is we have to talk to experts and say, this family doesn't have any funds. What can you do to look at, you know, will you look at this? And, and we don't hire people because we want a specific opinion. We hire people because we want the truth. Yeah. Uh, we, we don't want them to say, no, your client's not guilty because we paid them. We actually, we want the truth. And, and the people that we do hire are of high integrity and they will give us the absolute truth. The fact that Christine and I went through what we went through. Me, a defendant sitting in that very chair. Christine, the wife of the defendant sitting in that chair. And turning that trust over to, to our first attorneys, Jeff and Jay, and then them handing it over to a jury, and then not being able to make a decision and, and being hung. And then in our second trial, handing that over to Tara Thompson and John Lovey, and, and then them handing it over to a jury in Sangamon County and coming back with a not guilty verdict. So, uh, I mean, we've, I, I think we try to use that for motivation in what we do because we've been there. I mean, not only am, am I defense counsel now, but I've been a defendant. And, and so there's, there's a level of empathy there that I don't think that you can have unless you went through the process and you've been an innocent person accused of a crime and you've had to go through not only one trial, but two trials. And you've had to experience the revelation of finding evidence that was hidden from me. And then the, the anger of why would a police officer not turn that over? And why would a police officer conspire with other people? And why would a, a police officer make stuff up just to get you convicted? And so there, there, there's anger there, there's frustration, and, and I think there's a better understanding of some of the weaknesses, again, I, I think we have the greatest respect for our criminal justice system, but we know it, it's, it's not perfect and it doesn't get it right all the time. I think it gets it right, I think, most of the time. 
I mean, most of the time. But even 1% of the time is, is too much. And, and I think that uh, a lot of the people that prosecuted Kurt and people in the community and people who send us hate messages still who would say, well, look, you, you got a whole new career out of this. And I, and I did go back to school and, and I did study with some very important people in, in the investigative world. And I'm so grateful to have gotten the opportunity to learn from these people. That being said, we didn't, when they say to us, oh, look, it worked out so fine. Look at this. You're home, you have your family, and you get to get back to normal. Well, there is no going back to our normal because we never even got to figure out what our normal was because that got ripped out from underneath of us. And I would love nothing more than for us to be living in a Pollyanna world where I still didn't know that wrongful convictions happened and I, and I was never introduced to you guys and I didn't know who Jamie Snow was. That's kind of naive thinking, but I was happy. I'm leaving the corporate world, opening the pie shop. I make a great pie, <laughs> but and doing whatever work and our boys growing up and our family, no issues and our family just being happy and doing the things that we were doing and everybody loving our family and us loving the world. The reality is that's not how this is. And we were thrust into this place that we can't look away from. We invite any witness featured on the Snow Files podcast to come on the show to give their point of view or to clarify anything that they think might have been misstated. In episode 23 we heard from a man who was wrongfully accused of a murder he did not commit and how the state of Illinois almost got away with it. Kurt and Christine Lovelace shared some of the same sentiments Jamie has expressed. The shock of being accused of a heinous, erroneous crime, the disbelief in a brazen, false narrative fabricated by authorities, the trauma a family faces while guarding innocence, and the enduring hope for truth to prevail. In Kurt's case, the exoneration project was able to prevent a wrongful conviction, but they still fight for Jamie's post-conviction motions today. If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential. Our next episode is the season one finale, where we play Whose Lie Is It Anyway? with Jamie to recap the latest key players from his own trial. That's next time on Snowfiles.